0: the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, And they passed by in the morning, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Sean. I'm the, the lead pastor here for Redemption Peoria and the primary teaching pastor. Um, I say this every week. If I don't know you, I want to get to know you. Um, even if you've been coming a couple weeks, uh, I will be in the lobby afterwards. And, uh, and I really would love to, to get to know you. Jim Ellis, he kills me, doesn't he? He's like, that guy when technology is like oil and water, kills me. It's like, we've been, we've been going for about two years now with communities. And I still cannot get this guy to understand Google Docs. He's just, it's ridiculous. Um, so, hey, listen, um, he, here's the deal. Um, I want to just reiterate something Jim had said. Um, Obviously, as you can see, we're we're getting ready to go to two services. And some of you have been coming from the beginning or at least a couple months. Listen, it's your time at this point, if you call this place your church, to step up. And I'm not one to kind of push to make you get involved, but guilt, okay? Um, So... So there is something for you. If you feel like children's ministry could be something you do or set up crew, you you need to step up and and not just come to a building on Sundays, but be a part of a church. I mean, there's a big difference. So with that being said, um, we're going to get into Mark. So if you haven't already opened there, Mark uh, chapter 11, and I want to take a quick moment and recap. In case you don't know where we are and how we've gotten here, not just the big book, but specifically um, last week, what, what we've been talking about. Um, and, and so here's, here's what had happened. I've said this every week. and We've tried to put this in front of you. We're going through Mark, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, very intentionally. One, because that's how we want to teach the Bible, because we believe this thing goes together. And sometimes there's things we have to address that maybe necessarily we, we don't want to address. We can't just pick topics. But more than that, we're, we're going through this, this thing, the book of Mark, because as we started, the very first... Sunday going through Mark, we made this declaration that we want to be about Jesus. We want to be our, our, our life, everything that we do to be about Jesus. And if we want to be about Jesus, we need to figure out what Jesus is about. And if we want to be a church that follows Jesus, then we need to know who Jesus is. And the reason Mark is awesome for us to do this, and this is something that I've said over and over, is in the book of Mark, the readers in the first half didn't know who Jesus was but we as readers did know who Jesus was. And so what we found is demons are declaring who Jesus was, and he's like quiet, but we see the other characters, they're wrestling with who this guy is. And Jesus is establishing his kingdom, he, he's, he's casting out demons, he's showing everything um, that he's doing has to do with him, him kind of uh, bringing about this newness, this, this new kingdom, because the old age is gone. And, and, and last week I tried to unearth, What Jesus has been getting at this whole time. And the idea is that in his kingdom, he's trying to show us what it means to be fully human. Like at the core of Christianity, our worldview is not one that would, what, what Jesus would save our souls so we can leave this God-forsaken earth, but the idea is that everything he puts in place, he's showing you what it means to be great. And he gives us this example of serving, that in his kingdom, if you want to be a full human, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you need to understand you need to serve. Um couple examples so you can kind of understand what this means. Um, myself and some friends were in our house, and when you walk into our, our home, you'll see a chalkboard that um, uh, Emily Heald had made for us. And I put a quote, I try to change up this quote I put on there, and I put a quote by C.S. Lewis on there. And it says, when you enter heaven, you will become more human than you've ever become before. This is a quote by C.S. Lewis. Now, now what does that mean, right? We immediately wrestle with this idea. When I enter into heaven, I, I will become more human than I've ever been before, ever before on earth. Lewis's idea is that, and he says this, and maybe you've heard this from Lewis before, right before that, that we are not, we're not, we're not bodies with souls, but we're souls with bodies. And originally God had made us to enjoy the things that you enjoy. Okay. So, so he's not some like joy kill that doesn't want you to enjoy the things, sports or arts or entertainment. No, listen, he made those things. That was his idea. Now, like anything that you enjoy, anything that's of value, you put parameters around it. You don't say kids, all right, go play out on the 101, have fun. No, you, you have parameters because you love your kids. You lock up jewelry, you lock up deeds, things. God puts these things. He says, listen, here are the things that you love, okay? And if you want to enjoy them to the fullest, enjoy them the way that I've created them to be. A great example of this for anyone who's over 21 years old is alcohol, Okay. The idea that as Christians, we, we can take a, a, a beer or two beers, and I don't drink, right? I say this every time. I'm going to clarify that. I don't mess around with that sin juice stuff, but for, you know, it's you. Um, but listen, you, 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 can, you can have a beer or you can have two beers as a Christian, and God created Hops right? Like he made the fermentation, he made this to be what it is. And you can enjoy this and bring glory to God. But you're sitting with your non-Christian buddy. And maybe you're not a Christian here and you're, you're hearing this for the first time, but you're sitting there with your non-Christian buddy. And after two beers, you stop, right? But, but your buddy can keep going and he can go an excessive amount and ultimately get drunk. And what we would do as Christians, we recognize that everything we do, God has, has put these laws or these things in place for us to enjoy life to the fullest. That as we look at beer, right? And we, we see beer to be enjoyed for the glory of God. We say, but listen, beyond that, like when I go past these couple of beers, I'm not enjoying it for, for his glory, I'm enjoying it for mine, and therefore, it's not for my ultimate joy. And, and though I think it's going to be the most fun, it's like a firecracker. It's, it's here and gone, and then I regret my life as I continue to walk down that path. But if you want ultimate, long-lasting joy, then we continue to cultivate a life of, uh, of glory for Jesus in everything. This is food, this is the way that we work, this is sex, this is everything. Now, with that said, um, Jesus is showing us what it means to be human in all of this, right? Um, But he makes a declaration in the passage that we're going to get at today, um, because what he's doing and how he's working his kingdom and teaching us this is the exact opposite way that his disciples and everybody else would think that he's going to do that. So so in, in Mark, over and over, what we have seen is the demons say, I know who you are, and he said, shut up, be quiet. And people say, oh, he's healed. Oh, let me tell everyone. No, no, don't tell anyone. Jesus has had this plan the whole time to unearth and unfold what he's trying to get at. And today we finally get to get at the ethos of what he's doing and showing us what it means to be fully human. So Mark chapter 11, we're going to go all the way uh, to verse 26 here. Uh, and then, and then um, as we go, so if you, if this, is, this is your uh, first time. I'm just going to read a, read a little bit of the Bible. We're going to talk about it, unpack it a little bit, um, and, and I want to say specifically about this passage, and this may sound, I'm not trying to hype it up or whatever, but I have not um, spent as much time on any other passage as I have this passage. Um, I literally, I, on average, it takes me about 12 hours to prepare for this moment for me to be able to, to teach us as a church, um, but it took me close, closer to 20 hours um, because this passage is really weird. It's really weird. There's fig trees, and there's temples, and it's just a weird deal. Um, and so um, I got to explain a lot, so I need you to put your theological caps on when we get to a couple points, because we, we got to walk through some of this. But let's at least get to, to what's happening um, in the very beginning. Uh, verse 11, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus is with his disciples, and, and most likely some other people, to Bethpage and... Uh, Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So, if you if you guys remember the last time we were with Jesus, he was in Jericho. Fun fact: Jericho is one of, if not the lowest place, lowest city on the earth. It's about 800 uh, feet below sea level. And going going from Jericho to Jerusalem is is only about like a dozen miles. But uh, but Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. And it's a hard terrain. So so Jesus and his his crew are literally walking up the Grand Canyon. Um, I mean, close close to the Grand. They're going up the Grand Canyon. And as they enter Jerusalem, they're kind of going to see this beautiful place, right, that they haven't seen vegetation in a while. They haven't seen civilization in a while. They're tired. And so they get there, and there's this awesome moment where, um, they, they arrived to Jerusalem, right? At the Mount of Olives. Uh, verse, uh, ver, continue in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1 into verse 2, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and, uh, and we'll send it back here immediately. That's always a funny thing. He's like stealing someone's car. Like, well, well, God needs it. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Um, back here, and, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it, and some of those standing there said, uh, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them uh, that Jesus had, had, uh, had said, and they let them go, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So I want to pause real quick because this is something known as the triumphal entry. Um, this is Jesus entering Jerusalem, and what he has declared, when he enters Jerusalem, he is going there for one reason. To die, His disciples know it. He knows it. For the most part, the people know it. And he's entering Jerusalem. But before we get there, I need you to see what Mark is trying to communicate in this because it's only in the other Matthew account of the four gospels. He's trying to communicate an insane amount of intentionality here. Jesus didn't just go like, yeah, you'll find, I don't know, go get some donkey. He very specifically, whether he worked it out ahead or is prophetic in this moment, um, he very specifically is aware of a donkey that is there. He sends his two disciples, two of his disciples to go get this donkey and he knows the interaction. So he tells them what to say, right? This, this passcode. And as they bring the donkey, the disciples take uh, their, their cloaks off and put it on the donkey so that Jesus can sit on it. Now, Now, here's the thing. Um, If you grew up in church, you've always been told, Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies. You know what it's like? It's like take the state of Texas and fill it with quarters three feet high, right? Um, If you're not from church, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, they would say, Fill up the state of Texas with quarters three feet high. Take one quarter, mark an X on it, drive in a helicopter, throw it off, let it land, stir up the whole state of Texas. Yeah, that's possible. Stir up the whole state of Texas, okay? And then take a man, have him walk anywhere in the middle of Texas, stick his hand down in the quarters and grab a quarter. The chances that he finds the quarter with the X on it is the chances that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. And you're like, okay, here's the reality. Jesus did fulfill the prophecies. Mathematically, I have no idea how it all works, but here's what I do know. There are some prophecies that Jesus from the earthly um, state of mind had no control over, i.e. being born of a virgin, uh, from a virgin, but there are some that he very intentionally did, and this is one of those things that he very intentionally did. He is not the first person to walk in uh, to Jerusalem on a donkey. He's not the first person to have people call out Hosanna as he walks in. He's not the first person in the last 200 years. If, If you come from Catholic roots, there's this guy named Maccabee who did this. The same thing, almost exactly, a hundred years prior. So, so Jesus is doing this very intentionally, trying to show us something. Now, the prophecy. I, I want to read it. Um, this is where we got to put some of our caps on here. Um, the prophecy comes from some Zechariah nine and, and nine and ten. Let me read it just so you know. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Uh, Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt and fowl of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, so the Jews and the people who are in this crowd, which keep in mind, Jerusalem holds about two thousand people, but it 's close to the Feast of the tabernacle, so you 're looking at almost about two hundred thousand people are trying to cram into the city and the outer regions, and they 're seeing Jesus come in this donkey, and they 're expecting this Messiah, this guy whoever comes. Two, and I quote, so let's just do it. His rule will extend from sea to sea. Your king comes righteous and victorious. He's going to smash the battle boat. They're expecting this guy to be awesome. Like this guy who's going to, he looks good, right? And here he comes, but Jesus, um, fulfilling the prophecy very meticulously, actually reminds the people that he's to come in a, a lowly state. He, he doesn't come in riding on a, a great stallion, but he comes riding on a, on a colt, Like this donkey, and, and he doesn't come just to, to bring the sword in this moment, but he comes, and I quote, he will proclaim peace to the nations. And so the people here see this man walking in, and they're proclaiming, as we find out now in uh, verse 8. Many spread their cloaks, so not only their cloaks on uh, the, the uh Mule for Jesus to ride on, but as he rides into the city, many are spreading their cloaks, their hoodies, they're throwing them on the ground, the cloaks of the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed after, follow followed after were shouting, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David, Hosanna, in the highest. A couple things about this. Um, this idea of Hosanna just means God save, right? It's actually an idiom in uh um this time. An idiom is this idea that like a church idiom today would be um like praise the Lord like we say it we I'm not literally in an imperative telling you to praise the Lord. It's this idea of praise the Lord and it's coming from Psalm 118 and and people are recognizing this. When the Messiah comes we're crying Hosanna and so they've heard murmurs of this guy Jesus here he comes, throw our cloaks down Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, your kingdom is coming. They're proclaiming this. And there's a lot of people, and, and maybe a lot of them don't know what's going on, but there are a select few who do know what's going on. And here is Jesus, in this kingdom announcement is coming about. Now, it's interesting, because I, I want you to see something. Um, when he says, and those who went before, and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna. In the highest. If there's been any declaration up to this point in the book of Mark of Jesus being that. Of Jesus being the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah. What has Jesus done every single time? Quiet. No, 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 no. Not yet. But not in this moment. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus is now saying, hey, hey, what's going on is the right thing. We have a parallel account in Matthew. Listen, the the Pharisees are seeing what's going on. The scribes of this time are seeing what's going on. And this is what happens, and I need you to understand this for us to go on. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, this is in Matthew um, 21, 15, and 16, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. So the Pharisees see what's going on, and they're mad that Jesus is sitting here taking these praise. They go to Jesus, and they say, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Jesus replied, yes. Have you ever read from the lips of the children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? So this is the first time. This is a big deal, man. The first time where Jesus does not suppress people declaring him as God. This is the first time where Jesus actually encourages it, looking at at the Pharisees saying, yeah, listen, I've been covert long enough. What they're doing, talking about how I'm great, they're right. They're doing the right thing. This is the first time in the book of Mark, this is Jesus allowing the people to declare him to be the Messiah. Now, it is with that attitude that we get some weird verses. Okay? Now, because um, some of you, um, if you look at your Bibles right now, you will notice that as you're going through, there's this verse 11... That is tied, and for whatever reason, um, uh, whoever did your Bible, ESV, NIV, New King James, whatever it is, um, you, you have at the end of that passage, verse 11, is not tied to the next section. It's actually part of this section. Now listen, that's not canon. That's not something that's like inspired by God. These are how people broke it up. But it's very interesting that this climactic moment from verses 1 through 10, Jesus coming in. This is the man. This is it. I am the man, right? Like this is it. Yes, I'm the Messiah. I mean, I, 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 this, is how, this is how it's going to go down. I have a plan. I've been intentional about doing this. Here comes Jesus. And then you have this anticlimactic thing tagged onto verses 1 through 10. This is what it says in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem. So this triumphal entry, he entered Jerusalem into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus gets off the donkey. He rolls into the temple. It's like 830 right now. Um, we'll come back tomorrow. Okay, And you're like, well, what was that? Okay, um, Jonathan Edwards uh, has, has a great saying. He says, it's not what happens in the triumphal entry, it's what doesn't happen. That's important. Um, uh, the, the idea of, of Jesus coming in with his disciples in this very anticlimactic moment of Jesus getting off the horse, everything's big, everything's big. He walks into the temple as if to connect, Mark, as if to connect the temple, what's happening in the temple with this triumphal entry. Okay, and he doesn't do anything. So he is here to do something for the temple. So we get to the next day. Track with me. Here we go. We got a lot of verses to go, um, uh, to continue going on. Verse twelve. On the following day, so it's the next day. uh, He didn't do anything that night. That the previous day was triumphal entry. When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, um, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Weird. Okay. So, so Jesus wakes up. All right, let's do this. And so he's, he's walking back, right? Uh, he's got some, some work to do. Looking in the distance, he sees this fig tree. I have no idea how big this fig tree is. Uh, my in-laws have a fig tree, and it's huge. I mean, just gi- this gigantic fig tree. Um, and then my next-door neighbor has one that's like super small, but apparently it's big enough to, to show. So we'll call it some kind of medium size. I don't know. And, and so he sees this fig tree from a distance, at least big enough to see from a distance. He walks up to it. It's not fig season, okay? He walks up to it, and he sees there's no figs on it, And he curses this thing and you're like, bro, what do you, it's not like right now is not the time for figs. Why are you so upset? Okay. So he curses this now. Now here is, here's where we got to put our our caps on. Um, I, I need you for a moment to imagine what it would be like to describe your life. And I've, I've tried to use this analogy before with you, describe your life to, to someone living in the time of Jesus. Like if you got to meet them, if there was a book that can go backwards in in describing your life, you would say, yeah, yeah. So, um, I sit at a desk all day and I work on computers and they're like, you work on what? Like, well, like computers, you know, like the internet. No, no. Like, okay, well, that's fine. What kind of horse do you ride up? I don't, I don't ride a horse. I, I ride a car. What's a car? Well, you know, it has like tires, like a wheel. Well, no, it has rubber. Well, what's rubber? Like there's, there's nothing for you that you can be, and you would begin to describe what you do, and there would be such a disconnect between the way that you live. And so here's what I need Jesus is a Jew dealing with Jews. You are, in the, you, you are an American dealing with someone talking from America, right? Uh, Jesus is in the first century dealing with people in the first century. You live in the 21st century, and, and so do I. So so this idea of us understanding can be disconnected. Now add that on top of, which I know some of you feel the frustration as you read your Bible, really not being able to connect the dots. Like there, there's some biblical illiteracy that, that we may, may find that as I'm reading a story like this and I don't know what's going on. So if you can allow me, um, I'm going to read this account of this fig tree, which we just read. Then I'm going to read the account of the temple and then we're going to come back to the fig tree. Okay? And, and Mark has been using this, this idea, this Markean sandwich, as it's called, to show us something. And I know it's difficult because there's some things that maybe you don't fully understand because you live now and you're still trying to understand the whole context of the Bible. At least give me a moment to try to explain this because if you do, quarters in Texas. Okay. Um, so, so let me read this. We're going to read all the way through what happens. Jesus curses this fig tree. Really weird. There's some assumed language here that we need to explain. But before we get there, verse 15, they, they, after the, cur- the, the fig tree is cursed, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. So remember, he had entered the temple before. He planned something. And begin to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were, were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Very quickly, before we read, go back to the fig tree, um, just so you can kind of understand, the temple is a big place. This guy named David um, wrote, drew up the plans and his son Solomon built this temple. It is gigantic. Um, it ends up getting destroyed. and ends up getting uh, rebuilt again. And so what you have is, you, you are supposed to make this pilgrimage as a Jew or, or, or somebody who wants to be cleaned, um, according to Jehovah, the God, as, as, he, as you come into the temple, you're to offer this sacrifice, okay? Now, um, there's a lot of shadiness going on. If, if if you can think like a movie theater, right? Like, oh, you can't bring your drink inside, but you can get drinks here. You, you can buy drinks here. And you're like, for like $7, I can buy a drink here. And that's what's happening um, with, with the, like, Well, that's a cute, like, pigeon offering. Um, Unfortunately, it's not good enough, but you can buy our pigeon offerings. And so they would take the pigeon offering and and the semblance, and then they would just give them that pigeon offering, and then when no one's looking, put that pigeon in and do the same idea. Not not to mention that this idea that um, you had to to, um, uh, take money, whether, let's say, like yen or or pesos, and you have translated to the the dollar, right? So they would take this, and they would have to convert their money over, but the money changers would take a little bit of money for themselves. And so this idea of sacrifice became extremely burdensome right? So now you're sneaking in Chipotle into the movie theater. I don't. I wouldn't do that, but um, okay. So, so, so what you have is this, this corrupt nature and Jesus sees this and he's not happy. He flips over the money changers. And it's funny because it says he's teaching them as he's like flipping over money changers saying, you over there, don't you understand that this is what Isaiah says? Okay. It's really weird. Um, I don't know if he would, that was kind of a weird way to fight, but so, so, so he, he, he uh, takes care of the temple and we come back to the fig tree. Hear this. And then hopefully we're, we're going to connect some dots here. And, and as they passed by in the morning, so the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. What is going on? What is happening here? Um, it's clear that Jesus obviously, um, and Mark is trying to communicate, it's, it's not about a fig tree. Um, but so 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 here's here's what I'm going to do. The language disconnect, the same way the first century person would know what a computer is, or, or wouldn't know what a car is. Um, you have to describe that. Allow me to describe things that they would hear in the first century. Um, certain words like fig tree, and, and and how they process that, and what's going on. Allow me to give you some definition of some of these terms. Now, for me to do this, I'm going to quote a um, a comment a, com- a commentator. No, that's not right. A commentator um, on the Book of Mark who did an extensive amount of work, and it's a kind of a longer quote, and I'm going to break it up into three sections so you can understand and and us together can see what's going on. I'm not trying to patronize anyone. I I just want us to be on the same page. This is what it says. A guy named Robert Stein. um, You'll forget who who he is. This is what it says. The fig tree was frequently used as a symbol in prophetic pronouncements of judgment upon God's people. It is so used in judgment statements against Israel versus supplied, uh, Judah versus supplied, Nineveh versus supplied, and nations in general. So, so before we go on to the next quote, this is the first idea. When, when the first century Jew hears this idea of fig tree, they're immediately thinking of judgment. They're, they're, in their mind, they're thinking, and now you have to imagine, the church is reading this just, what, 100 years after Mark is writing it. They're looking back on the time of Jesus. The original audience hears, he's cursing someone. Like, what, what is he? He's cursing this, this people. Who, who, what, what's, what is going on here? They're hearing judgment the same way you automatically understand if i say macintosh you know what kind of computer i'm thinking of right okay no one says macintosh everyone says mac but um so so you you get that idea so let me continue on um in mark 13 28 which we're going to read it's some eschatology in time study we'll get to that um in about a month in mark 13:28, jesus again uses a fig tree this time in a parable to uh, to signify the forthcoming destruction of jerusalem and the temple now hear this it is clear that Mark indicates that the cleansing of the temple was a carefully thought-out, planned, prophetic act. So his coming to the fig tree and finding no leaves indicates that the cursing miracle is also a thought-out, symbolic act, a dramatized prophecy. So yes, there was a fig tree. And yes, Jesus cursed that fig tree. But he's just not mad at random vegetation. He, he in this moment, is showing people something intentionally. Intentionally. He is talking about judgment on a people. Robertson continues on with this. The comment is meant to help Mark's readers, you and I, and, and um, uh, the first and second century readers, realize that what Jesus is doing in the story is not about a fig tree at all. It is rather a symbolic act, an acted out parable that explains the meaning of the cleansing of the temple. The fig tree represents Israel and is judged by the Messiah because despite the appearance of the religious activity symbolized by the leaves, Israel has failed to produce the appropriate fruit. So um, here's here's what's going on. Um, Jesus, as a king, is coming into Jerusalem to um, announce and proclaim, you as my people have continued to play games with my name. You've continued to do this over and over and you look like you have fruit. You you look like you're healthy, but you have leaves, and you've produced nothing. And so you're cursed. And so now you will wither, and now you will die, because I have a plan. Now before we go on to the story of Israel and how we got here, I need you to notice something amazing for us to apply. In Jesus coming, declaring himself as king, he pronounces with clarity, though in parable, two things that are absolutely not allowed in his kingdom. The first is this. The fact that you think you can call yourself a Christian and continue to play games with the world, the the fact that you think you can continue to be half in and half out, you could show your least but produce no fruits, you could not hate sin, but you could continue to walk in it, you could continue to, to act like it's okay, God's loving, well in this moment the first thing we can learn is his kingdom is showing yourself to be alive but not growing anything is not okay. The idea that you would walk in licentious manners to say, I'm a Christian. God loves me. I can do whatever I want. Be careful. Be very, very careful and learn from the parable of the fig tree. Be very, very careful. But, but the second thing comes from the same heart, but it's in the exact opposite side of the pendulum. That not only is Jesus not okay with you acting like you're uh, okay, um, and, and you got all kinds of mess in your life, and you're not willing to, as First as John would say, um, you're calling God a liar because you're saying you have no sin. The other thing comes from the same place, but, but it's different, right? Because what the Jews also did, and what's not loud in Jesus' kingdom as he announces himself as king, is for you to come here and not just to pretend you're all right, but have a systematized view of Christianity in such a way that as long as you do this, as long as you do this, as long as I take this, as long as I do this sacrifice, as long as I don't watch this movie, or as long as I play this out, then I have God in my back pocket. And feeling this weight that God in some way is in your debt. That because you do all the right things and you use terms that all Christians know and, and you, you think you can fly under the radar is not okay either. Just because you have a systematic approach to Christianity doesn't make it life-giving. You have a stony heart. And you may know how to play the game for a little bit, but eventually you're going to show your true colors. And Jesus in this moment is angry. And he's casting out people in this temple for trying to, at their core, earn God by doing things for self-gain. And, and what's crazy about this term legalism is Christianity has become about you. The temple sacrifices has become about them and you try to mix these two worlds and it's not allowed it's just not allowed in his kingdom now for the story of of israel specifically and why he curses them it's it's kind of unique right um the very first time we gathered as a church we we declared what we are about as a church and being about jesus is um, we are planting a church for mission we said that over and over and over again We are planting a church for mission. And here's what's happened with Israel up to this point. When God chose these people, it wasn't because they had swag. It wasn't because they had righteousness. It wasn't because they were awesome. God chose those people because God chose those people. For whatever reason, he chose the nation of Israel. And here's what he said. And I've tried to put our worldview in front of us over and over. You are a nation I want this temple to be here. I want people on the outside to look to you to glorify me. They were meant to be this mirror to God's glory. They were meant at their core to signify all the goodness, what real humanity looks like. And now in this moment, as he says, I love it. Uh, Actually, I'll I'll read it specifically because I think it's, it's really great as he's casting all these people out. Um, he's driving them out, sold the temple, and overturn the money changers and the seats uh, who sold the pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything in through the temple. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That the temple was not meant to be this hard idea that bring the, the Gentiles in, make it difficult for them to assimilate, let them feel awkward. No, no, no. You are to reflect me to them so they can enter the temple. This temple is for them, and I am only using you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the church. That's the church. That's what we are. That's what we do. Like in no way when you pronounce this, well, you can come, but you better get your life straight first. Are you crazy? Like look at your life. Well, homosexuality, they're wearing certain kinds of clothes. Look at your heart, man. Like you got, you got wickedness up in there, and, and now you're going to judge them? This place is, it's, it's that we meet at a, at a place that's going to do jungle book for the love of God. Like it's not a, it's we are this people. And what's crazy is in this example, the temple is the temple. But now in the church, you are the temple. You are now the temple that people are to look to as mission continues to go forth for the glory of Jesus that people would see and go, dude, what is it about you, man? Like, this is Christianity 101, isn't it? And this is what Jesus is establishing in his kingdom. Um, I've tried to do my best, um to provide application before we ever finish. And um, I'm almost out of time, but, but I, I do want to give you some, some, some application because I, th- I think it's hard, right? Um, when I say maybe some of you are sitting here on this side and, and now you're, you're dealing with, um, I can continue to sleep with my girlfriend and, um, or whatever it is, and, and, and you kind of have allowed sin to seep in. And something I've said over and over and over again is the only sin we're okay with in this church is the sin you're not okay with. So yes, you have sin. Y- you absolutely have sin. As long as you hate that sin, then you're welcome. You are so welcome. You, you come and be part of our community. But if you think for a moment, you can continue to, to, to hold both. That you can contend, pretend to, to, to be the Christian, but, but still live the life you want to. Or, or you can contend, uh, continue to, to put on the show and do all the right legalistic acts. Um, you're going to be called out for it. And, and if this is the case, we're dealing with both. Uh, how, how? How do I break this? Um, how do I get past this? Um, and, and here's my answer. At the core at the center of what Jesus is pushing up against, for both of these things is this term you are all too familiar with, but you don't remind yourself enough of it. It's the term, the gospel. The idea that you can sit there and say, I can do what I want, shows one thing. You don't understand the gospel. That Jesus came, he loves you deeply enough to point at those things and say, hey, this is killing you. This is killing you. My dad was a meth addict for 35 years. Listen, I've seen the effects of sin. And you go back and back and back over and over. And it's killing you because we don't believe the gospel. But the other side is true as well, isn't it, right? It's this older brother mentality, this I'm right and fit. And and the reason you you don't think that you necessarily need to succumb to all of grace is because you, you don't believe the gospel. You think for whatever reason that, that um, you need to gospel and whatever. And it's just not the case. But how do we fight that, right? Because we're, we're kind of even process. Uh, I need the gospel, I need to just believe. But, but you can't conjure up belief, right? You're, you're trying to have faith. And I, I don't think it's an accident that right after this, Mark puts this idea of, as he says in verses um, uh, 23 and on, Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he, uh, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you um, forgive you your trespass. It's, it's really bizarre that this is um, in that spot because in John, where it also mentions this is actually very early early on, and it seems awkward to put it in. And if you were like me, grew up in the charismatic world, we, we love to quote that stuff, right? Because we see that, and it's kind of been taken from the, the, the charismatic prosperity gospel world to be used as to just ask, and it's yours. Planes, cars, houses, whatever you want, right? And I still wrestle with what's going on here, that I can ask anything, and I don't claim to have the answer, but I will say, at the core of what Jesus is telling them is if you would just believe, you can have it. If you, you would just have faith, that that you would understand that, that. Um, as uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, that, that um, faith is a gift from God. That at your core, there's moments where, you, where Bible's telling you to have faith, but there's this reliance to go, man, maybe I'm this or maybe I'm this, but I need to just believe. I need to have faith in him. I need to try, try to, to, to quit thinking that I'm, I'm too far from grace that it can't save me or I have too much that I don't need it. But in this moment, the gospel levels us out and it brings us together. Just believe. Trust him. Now, here's, here's my practical application. I think the reason that we struggle with belief so much is... Um, Um, We are not engaging the God who gives it enough. Uh, A guy named G. Campbell Morgan in the late 1800s loved himself some Charles Spurgeon, right, which is a good dude. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and he, 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 uh, he was a pastor and he's 19 years old and he gets out of seminary and he's struggling a lot. He's reading guys like Huxley, um, Darwin. And so he's struggling with his faith. And so he decides to put all of his books on the shelf to cancel anything where he was going to do in ministry and lock himself in a room, um, for as long as it would take with a brand new Bible that he bought from the library. And he basically made this declaration until I figure this out, I'm not doing anything else. I need to know if I believe this or not, because I'm questioning my faith at the core And later in his life, as he um, would tell this story of him locking himself in his room, he's a Christian, he died a Christian, he died a pastor, a faithful man of God. Um, People would always ask him, "Well, what happened in that that room? Like, like what happened? right?" And and what happened to that man is is exactly what he's, like, I'm doubting, I'm I'm living in this licentious, or I'm living in legalism. And all he would say is, and I I think it's beautiful, these um, four simple words, Uh, every time someone would ask him what happened in those four rooms, he, he would just simply reply, the Bible found me. See, maybe, as faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, um, you continue to act the way that you do and think sin's okay because you're not reading about the God who hates sin. You're not praying to the God who hates sin. And you, you think over here that, that it's, it's do's and don'ts and get it right over and over, but that's because you're not reading the, the, the God of the Bible who gives grace unending, that is super faithful, that is mercy is never-ending. That, that the core, me too, bro. Um, at the the core of of what we see, at the core of what we see in the word of God is something that reminds us that the creator of everything pulls us back into that. So here's how I'm going to finish. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 19. And my prayer is for application is that you would go after Acts 17. You would go after the God of the Bible. That if you're living in this life, you would go after. You would stop trying to correct this and just try to go after him. And this will continue to take care of itself. That you would stop trying to to maneuver more and let go and just go after him. Because the reality is, as Christians, we have the same advantage as the Jews did. They knew a Messiah was coming. They didn't know how. And so they're trying to figure it out. But they started to, to not believe in the right areas. And they fell into these two categories. But the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. We believe this dude is coming. He, he's returning and he's not coming on some lowly colt. He, he's not coming on some donkey in peace. He's coming with vengeance. And so at the core of the fact that you feel alone sometimes, you need to remember, come back to the middle. He's coming. He's coming. When you see a baby being mutilated and you can't take it, like it removes the breath out of you, he's coming. He's coming with justice and it's going to be swift. When a friend betrays you, when you lose a family member, he's coming. Be reminded of that hope. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Hear this, be edified to know that the same Jesus that marched in uh, uh, to Jerusalem that day in, in announcing this to be the case declares to us now, the, the apostle John uh, declares to us that this same Jesus is going to return and this is how he will return. And I saw heaven Opened and behold a white horse, and he sat and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Verse twelve. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one except himself. No one knows except himself. Verse thirteen, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress with the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is all, if he has announced himself to come into your life, stop playing games with these two things. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful. We are grateful for your grace. And though there are texts and moments that seem extremely difficult, um, we are grateful for the fact that they sober us up. That they remind us that um, you're not all pillows and and puppies. That the idea that you um, are this soft um, pushover is just not the Jesus we see in the Bible. And that you do pronounce judgment. And that it's something that is to be taken serious. And so because of that, we recognize that all the judgment, all the wrath, the only way that this thing can be solved in the gospel is for you to take it. You yourself we're cursed. You yourself felt the pain, and and because of that, that stirs our hearts. Every time we reach for the mouse and click on something we shouldn't, or every time we continue to think we're better than someone else, remind us of that fact that you died for that wretched sin. We love you, Jesus. We, We thank you. We are so grateful for all that you do and all that you say. We pray that the word of God would continue to come alive in our heart, that faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that we can be active and knowing that the faith comes from an outside source in you and your word, but we can pursue it. We can pursue it. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.